The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. So, you know, we are at a moment of very, very high risk, and I'm not sure that people really know that or understand it. Or if they do, if they care, there is a mood now, you know, well, the system is so rotten or it's so terrible that we might as well abandon it and anything else is better. And I always counsel people who say that very often young people to go and visit a country that's not a democracy and see if that's what you would prefer. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kempf. And I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. In the past, people had clear names for the threats to human liberty. The Founding Fathers fought against monarchy. World War II was fought against Nazism. The Cold War era was opposed to communism. But these days, we know that the old names no longer fit. Still, we haven't decided on a new one. If you listen to this podcast, though, you've probably heard a few attempts to describe contemporary autocrats, from spin dictators to populists to 4P autocrats to kleptocrats. Recently, Ann Applebaum gave them a new name when she gave the annual Seymour Martin Lipset lecture. She calls them Autocracy Inc. Autocracy Inc. recognizes how today's autocrats have significant differences. In fact, many people will find it natural to believe that today's autocrats have nothing in common at all. But too often, we do see them working together, whether it involves Iran supplying drones to Russia or Russia investing in Venezuelan oil. So Anne thinks Autocracy Inc. helps us understand their common interests and why they cooperate to challenge democracy and human rights throughout the world. Now, Anna Applebaum really doesn't need an introduction. She is a staff writer at The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. Some of her books include Gulag, a History, Red Famine, Stalin's War in Ukraine, and most recently, Twilight of Democracy, the Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism. Our conversation explores the motivations for Autocracy, Inc., and how the West should respond. We also touch on the themes of her last book, such as why some people find authoritarianism attractive. She also shares some of her thoughts on the state of democracy in Poland as they approach new elections in October. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly donor on Patreon or a premium subscriber on Apple Podcasts. It doesn't need to be a big commitment. For just $5 per month, you can access a growing catalog of bonus episodes and listen to new episodes early and ad-free. The most recent bonus episode features Scott Manwaring in a conversation about the legacy of legendary political scientist Juan Lenz. There's a link in the show notes to connect on Patreon. 
You can also provide a one-time donation on the Democracy Paradox website. Like always, feel free to send questions or comments to me at jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, this is my conversation with Anne Applebaum. Anne Applebaum, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, Anne, I loved your speech, Autocracy Incorporated, but I've noticed that you've used that phrase, that term, a few times before. In fact, the first time I remember seeing it was in your article, The Autocrats Are Winning, where you write, unlike military or political alliances from other times and places, the members of this group don't operate like a block, but rather like an agglomeration of companies. Call it Autocracy Incorporated. I'd like to kind of delve into this idea of Autocracy Incorporated. Why do you describe autocracies as an agglomeration of companies? And how is it different today than maybe past incarnations? Um, so first of all, thanks. Yes, you're right. I've used it a couple of times. And it's perhaps the title of my next book, if I ever have time to write it. I've been very distracted by the war in Ukraine. I was really looking for a metaphor that describes the relationships between countries like Russia, China, Iran, Venezuela, and Belarus, because these are not traditional ideological alliances. So these are not countries that have anything in common. Nationalist Russia and theocratic Iran and Maoist China and Bolivarian Venezuela and, I don't know, collective farm boss Belarus, you know, they don't share common texts. They don't share common ideas of what is a good society. They don't have a common foreign policy. They have a, you know, very, very different sense of the world. They do have one common interest, which is all of them have the same political domestic interest, which is in crushing or restraining their own democratic opposition. And that is one of the ways in which they now cooperate internationally. They have a common interest in crushing democracy activism wherever it appears. They dislike the language of democracy. They dislike the language of human rights. They push back against it in the UN. And they even seem willing to help one another crush their respective movements. You know, and so you saw the Russian, you know, very open interference in Belarus in 2020, when the Belarusian opposition looked very close to winning and the Russians sent in reinforcements, not just, I should say, police reinforcements, but also Russian journalists to run Belarusian state media and do the propaganda differently. I should also say the thing that makes them like companies is that their relationships are very transactional. So they also don't have historic friendships based on some kind of deep, long sense of, I mean, what is the historic relationship between Iran and Venezuela? I mean, none. They're not necessarily traditional allies or regional allies either. And of course, they also have certain kinds of interests in common. So they have similar ways of using, for example, the Western financial system to launder money, to keep themselves in power, to export their money out of their countries and then keep it in various places and then import it back. It's not an accident that Russian, Chinese, Venezuelan, and frankly, lots of African and other oligarchs, you know, all own apartments in London because they all use the same accountants. They use the same banks and the same techniques. There are a lot of things and tactics that they share, even if they don't share an ideology. And so that seemed to me less like a kind of Cold War style alliance and more like something different. And I came up with Autocracy Inc. because it seemed like the best description of that. 
I think part of the reason why it makes sense, it kind of rings true for myself, is because of the way that they interact with the West. You've already described how they use Western financial institutions, but it's almost as if the West wants to do business with them, and because of this, is really enabling them, encouraging them. In that same article, you also write, how have modern autocrats achieved such impunity, in part by persuading so many other people in so many other countries to play along? So why do countries, why do democracies enable autocrats? So there's a history to that. And the history is that a perfectly logical, I should say, from that point of view at the time, theory of how we would relate to the autocratic world that emerges in the early 1990s is that through trade and through contacts and through extensive diplomatic relations, but actually especially through trade, we would have an impact on that world. I mean, some of it was classic, you know, if we buy and sell things from them, then we won't go to war with them. And some of it went a little bit farther than that. I mean, there was an idea that building pipelines between Germany and Russia would eventually lead to positive political change in Russia. There was an idea that American trade with China would, if not make China a democracy, then at least make it a more open society. And in fact, actually, it did. I mean, trade and capitalism did make China a more open society. It just didn't make it friendlier towards us. And in particular, the changes there in the last few years have made that even more difficult. But the idea that U.S. companies or European companies could happily trade with the autocratic world and that in the course of doing so, they would not only make money, but eventually would open up those societies was very widespread and accepted. I've just been doing some research on it. And it really only began to become clear in the last few years that that was wrong and that, in fact, you know, trade with China empowered the Chinese state, partly through the fact that many of the companies we were trading with were in effect, state companies, or they were controlled by the state, you know, even more so in Russia, where all of the large natural resources companies are either directly state-owned or they're owned by oligarchs who are somehow, you know, owe their fortunes to the state. And so in effect, we were trading with the Russian government when we're trading with Russian companies. And so the private companies that we were working with weren't really private companies. So, and most people of my generation, I mean, we remember those conversations about how trade was going to change autocratic nations. What I found remarkable in your lecture and in many of your other writings was that you bring up the fact that nobody really thought about how interactions with autocracies would change democracies, would affect the free world. So in hindsight now, what we know now how has that engagement with autocracies affected countries like ours? I think in the first instance, it had the effect of making the business class to begin with much more cynical. You know, all the people who were doing clandestine or not even clandestine, I mean, legal but dodgy deals, you know, with the Russians in particular in the 2000s. Some of that rubbed off. I mean, actually, the most famous example, this is Donald Trump. One of whose children has said that much of the investment into their properties, you know, the purchasing of properties, which of course could be done anonymously in most countries, anonymous companies could buy apartments in luxury buildings. And one of the Trump children has said that, you know, most of that business came from Russians. And so the knowledge that people were stealing money and buying properties in your building and doing so somehow legally or quasi legally 
I think had a corrupting effect on the American property market, certainly on the London property market, probably on the property market in the south of France and a few other places. And I think the same thing can be said of banks and bankers. I mean, as it became clear that the really big money that was sloshing around, you know, was Russian or Chinese or even sort of Malaysian or Angolan, and it was coming from people who had gotten it semi-legally or even illegally, you know, I think that created a lot of cynicism in the financial markets and eventually that seeped into politics. And I think the experience of constant interaction, you know, again, between the business community and those places had the effect of making them more cynical about our own legal system. Secondly, of course, the fact that we now live in a global information space where everybody has access to everybody else, you know, I think we discounted what the impact of that would be. And so, I mean, the famous story, again, is the use of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election, or the use of bots and divisive polarizing messaging, but actually they do it everywhere. And it's also been copied everywhere. And the Russian style of campaigning which is to create fake groups that pretend to be more radical than they are on either one side or the other, you know, all that. And that's now copied and imitated by all kinds of political parties in democracies, too. You know, that way of thinking and campaigning, you know, this kind of cynicism about democracy and the cynicism about the ease of manipulation, I think, had an impact on us as well. You know, you could go down a number of roads. Surveillance technology. I mean, Israel's not usually classed as a classic Western democracy, but it is actually Israeli technology that autocrats and actually some illiberal Democrats around the world are putting onto people's cell phones. This is the famous Pegasus software. There was a scandal about it in Poland where the government put it on the phones of the opposition. And, you know, it's been used in Mexico. It's been used in Greece. It's been used in lots of other places. And this is a kind of spyware that was originally supposedly created to defeat terrorists. And maybe it does do that. But it turns out that you can also use it to spy on your political opponents. And so the range of surveillance technology that's now available of course, the Chinese make and manufacture their own surveillance technology, but they also sell it. We know that they sell it to places like Zimbabwe. You know, how much of it they sell in the democratic world, we might not know yet, but we might soon discover that there's more than we think. So just to kind of steer the conversation back to the idea of kleptocracies and kleptocrats, do you feel like the amount of money that's coming from corrupted leaders or it's really stolen from some of these autocratic nations, people. Do you feel like that amount of money is actually large enough to actually reshape different parts of our own economy? I don't know if it's the entire economy, but it feels like possibly certain sectors really depend on that influx of cash on a regular basis. I mean, how do you think about that? So it depends what you mean. I mean, one would have to break that down, but I mean, if you mean purely kleptocratic money, I mean, so the banking market in London, the accountants, the lawyers, the you know real estate industry in London are all profoundly shaped by kleptocratic money. And they, in turn, have some influence on politics. I mean, London is also the political capital as well as the financial capital. And the presence of that kind of money has undoubtedly shaped British politics. So, I mean, if you want just that one example. I think that's one of the most famous ones. You know, I used to think that in the US, the amount of money sloshing around the system was so enormous that, you know, the tiny amount, relatively speaking, that Russian oligarchs could contribute was pretty small. But then, you know, on the margins, 
you know, the Russian investment in the NRA, which wasn't really just a financial investment. You know, they had people who were trying to be close to the NRA and so on. And there may, of course, be more money than we know, because it may go through other people and so on. You know, maybe that made a big difference. I don't know, in the NRA's ability to continue operating and to be actually one of the most successful lobbying organizations of all time. Little bits of money, for example, the loans made to Marine Le Pen in the previous French electoral cycle seemed to have been able to keep her in politics when other French banks wouldn't lend her money. You know, there's another example. I don't think that was kind of millions and billions of dollars, but it was a small loan and it kept her in the game. So I don't know that you need, you know, billionaire type money to be influential. It depends on how you pay, you know, where you pay it and where you use it. And there are a lot of marginal people and groups and lobbyists and so on who don't cost very much to persuade. You know, American think tanks, you don't need to invest very much money in them to get them to do a paper that's to your liking. I mean, there's some famous examples of that. So I'm not sure that you need that much money in order to have a political impact. I get the impression that the real estate market is one sector that seems to have an inordinate amount of financing from kleptocrats and kleptocratic governments. It seems like there's aspects of the entertainment industry that have been funded by the billions stolen from the Malaysian people and the Malaysian government. It seems like there's certain sectors that seem to have drawn interest from investments from kleptocrats more than others. Yeah, I know that's definitely true. I mean, you know, mom and pop grocery stores are not evidence of kleptocracy, but you can pinpoint particularly the entertainment industry is really interesting. You know, in the case of Hollywood, it turns out to be very important to sell particularly big kind of blockbuster movies to sell them in China. And that's shaped a little bit the way that Hollywood makes movies. So all those action movies with not very much dialogue, I mean, those are aimed at international markets, especially the Chinese market, which of course the biggest. And it turns out that the Chinese mind very much if they're the villains in these movies. And so, you know, but he makes movies with Chinese villains. And that's why. The subject matter is chosen with Chinese tastes and the Chinese government influence in mind. You know, nobody wants to be boycotted by China. And the same is true of one or two important sports. I mean, the famous one is the NBA example, which I think is in my original Atlantic cover story article that you were quoting before. Where a you know NBA official made a positive comment about Hong Kong, and you know the Chinese government responded. This is about the Hong Kong democracy movement, and the Chinese government responded by you know banning some NBA games, and he had to apologize. So you know the amount of money that the NBA can make apparently from Chinese television and from Chinese franchises is enough to mean that the NBA censors itself when it talks about China. And so, you know, again, that doesn't mean that every academic in America is silenced by Chinese pressure or that journalists are, or that government officials are, but the sporting institutions, Hollywood, I would guess some pop stars are affected by Chinese influence when they think about how they're going to sell themselves and what kind of language to use. So is it possible to trade with autocracies and kleptocracies without enabling them? You know, I hope so, because, you know, international trade is very important to our economy, but we should do so and we should have been doing so more carefully. I think controls on what we export, careful, you know, evaluation of how those exports and how that trade is affecting our own companies. Some of that is happening now. There's much greater consciousness now of what it means to do deals with a state company in an autocratic state, but it would have helped to have some of that earlier. I also think more broadly, you know, there are just broader rules about property and anonymous companies that would help everybody. 
I don't know why anybody needs to have an anonymous company for any reason. Really, given the amount of harm that can be done, you know, a lot of it is just ordinary people hiding their money in order not to pay taxes. Uh, it's not all evil people in faraway places, but putting controls on that, I think, would be good for the transparency and the health of the whole economy. So there are some changes, particularly to the financial system, that we could do that would restrict the ability of foreign kleptocrats to use our financial system. That would actually also restrict the use of you know American criminals to use the American financial system. So I would appreciate more more being done in that direction too. So when I think of a classic kleptocracy, I mean, Russia comes to mind immediately, but Russia is a really super big economy. Some of the smaller kleptocracies, particularly Central Asian states and some countries in Africa as well, are relatively small. I mean, some of the only trade that's being done is coming from people that you could describe as kleptocrats or connected with them. I mean, is it possible to trade with those economies that... It seems like the only businesses that are looking to trade with the West are somehow connected directly to government corruption. I mean, I wouldn't trade with them, and I would caution companies that care about their reputations and even those that care about how much money they make to be very careful because obviously if you're trading with a kleptocratic company that's directly connected to the state, then there's always a political risk. I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine how we ban all trade, how technically it would be possible to restrict trade. But you know, there are some watchdogs already, but empowering those watchdogs to watch trade with those countries in particular would be useful. I mean, I'd also, I would like the people of Azerbaijan to be able to have some contact with the outside world, and I would like them to be able to sell their wheat. I don't want to end all trade, but certainly going into it with open eyes and having better monitors and better watchdogs would help a lot. So when you describe Autocracy Incorporated, it definitely brings up imagery that President Joe Biden has made very clear of trying to draw a line between democracies and autocracies. But there's obviously a lot of countries that fall somewhere in between, and not just in terms of not quite being a democracy or an autocracy, but also in between in terms of where they align themselves geopolitically. Foreign Affairs just did a big addition on the non-aligned world this past month. How do you feel that we should be interacting with these countries that see themselves as not wanting to align themselves with the democratic or the autocratic world? You know, I dislike actually this idea that we're going to separate the world into democracies and autocracies, not least because it immediately creates questions around countries like India, which defines itself as a democracy and which holds elections, but increasingly looks more and more like a one-party state, where one party is so dominant that it can control the media and, and affect the civil service and the judges and so on. You know, there are a number of countries like that, India, Turkey, I mean, much less important, Hungary, but they exist out there. And there are other countries that are somehow in the middle for other reasons or for historical reasons, they don't like being aligned. And so I would rather not talk in those terms. I do think that rather than having a democracy summit where all the democracies talk to each other, supposedly, I would rather focus on particular issues. I mean, for example, kleptocracy. There is a group of 50 countries you could get together and who could say, this is harming us. This is hurting our political systems. It's bad for our financial systems. It's distorting to our property markets. What can we do about it? And I'd rather see foreign policy focusing on those issues rather than trying to create a Cold War style block politics. 
I mean, I suppose the one area where this has become very sensitive and difficult is over the question of sanctions on Russia, because it would certainly help the cause of Ukraine and it would help the cause of, actually, it's not even really about democracy. It's just about preserving borders and maintaining stability in Europe if Russia would lose and if Russia would feel a greater economic impact from the war. And one of the reasons that it doesn't is that there's a huge sanction busting operation, you know, truckloads of stuff going through Turkey and Georgia. You know, the Chinese are helping them get around some of the rules on electronics and so on. And so it seems to me there could be better or more directed diplomacy focused on that issue. But I'm really not interested in getting everybody who's a democracy or calls themselves one on exactly the same page on all issues. And I don't think it's useful to do that. I mean, I don't think we'll win that argument and I don't see the point of it. I would rather, as I said, create coalitions around particular problems. In the case of Russia, there's a reason why Europe is on board, and that's because Europeans feel directly the security threat from Russia. Clearly, there are other countries that don't feel that security threat. And so we may need a different set of arguments to convince them to go along, and those might even have to be economic arguments. I think that's an important point about how you think about autocracy incorporated, is that it's not something that we're defining what is autocracy incorporated but rather that it's something de facto. It just already exists. And it's not something that they're even thinking about consciously. It's just something that they're adapting to because it's in their interests. Something you mentioned earlier about the way that Autocracy Incorporated behaves in terms of trade was in terms of creating surveillance technologies that they often export to the West, particularly China. Do you feel that businesses in autocratic governments tend to develop different types of technology than they do in the West, particularly around things like artificial intelligence. I just imagine that China's very focused on surveillance. It seems like in the United States, we're focused on other types of applications. Do you see a real divide in terms of how autocratic nations try to develop new technologies and try to develop different types of industries? So I don't know enough about artificial intelligence to be able to give you very precise descriptions. I can only repeat what other people have said, namely that it's going to be very important going forward for democracies to develop a set of standards and a kind of ethics around it and around the way it's used, which doesn't seem to be really happening yet. One of the big differences between us and China in this area is that in our case, it is private companies which are far ahead on this kind of technology. And in China, it is a state, you know, it's a state project. And so in our case, it's a matter of regulation rather than the DNA of the projects. My impression so far, and maybe I'm wrong, it's been my impression about technology in general, is that certainly the Congress is not yet sophisticated enough or doesn't really have the advisory or the backup to successfully regulate really almost anything in high technology, certainly not social media, probably not artificial intelligence. So going forward, Congress developing that sort of missing muscle, those missing capabilities, developing that as well is going to be very important in maintaining it. I mean, a lot, of course, depends on do we have a president, do we have an administration that wants to have ethical artificial intelligence. I mean, if there's a second Trump administration, I can imagine that maybe they don't. So we'll see. So we're obviously talking about autocracies in terms of the way that they work together. But your past book actually talked about the way that 
authoritarianism. The ideas of autocracies actually appeal to many people in democracies. The subtitle of your book, Twilight of Democracy, is The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. It's a very well-written phrase. It's one of those that just really bounces around in your brain trying to figure out what exactly that means. Why don't I give you a chance to just kind of explain to us why authoritarianism appeals to people in democracies and what exactly that seductive lure is? So there is a class of people, and I'd say it's roughly a third of most countries, who are bothered by the cacophony of contradictory voices, who don't like rapid change, who are uncomfortable with whether it's social or demographic or economic or informational transformation, and who dislike the openness and need to rapidly readjust that you find in the modern world. And sometimes there is a mostly economic component to this. I mean, people who've lost their jobs because of the rapid change. Sometimes there's a social component. People don't like the way social mores have changed in the last couple of decades. Sometimes people are just overwhelmed by the amount of information they receive on their phones and on their television sets. And for those people, the appeal of a single party, a single answer, or a single leader, homogeneity, unity, a return to some real or imagined previous era when everything was simpler and things were much more predictable, for some people, that's a very powerful feeling. I mean, I think the word, the historian and writer, Timothy Snyder, I was recently at an event where he was talking about the significance of predictability versus unpredictability, that, you know, autocracy often seeks to create predictability, with, of course, the exception of the dictator himself, who gets to be unpredictable. But a lot of people like and prefer predictability. They like and prefer people to be unified. And there is a kind of autocratic language that appeals to those people. And so The idea that automatically everyone wants to be open and everyone wants to be outward looking and everyone wants to be constantly in touch with all different kinds of things and people and opportunities is wrong. You know, and then just as I said, the there are particular types of politicians and political leaders and their propagandists who understand this and who seek to appeal to those people who are bothered by modernity. And you know, that's a bigger problem than we usually like to think. So most people who write for newspapers or who take part in American politics have had for a long time this kind of fundamental assumption that democracy is automatic and everybody agrees about it and everybody wants it to go the same way. And that the sort of mainstream story that we've told ourselves about democracy opening up over the past century and having been something confined to you know, white male landowners, how it spread eventually to include a much broader definition of who is American and who gets to vote. We assume that's a positive story, but not everybody does. And the backlash against that has taken the form of a kind of autocratic backlash. You know, I'm not just talking about the United States. I could talk about Poland, or I could talk about France, or I could talk about Germany and lots of other countries where you find a percentage of people who want to hear something very different from that. And, and you know, it's also important to remember that throughout human history, most of the time, most people have lived in autocracies. I mean, they were monarchies or they were dictatorships or they were something else. You know, democracy is very rare. It doesn't usually last very long. And it's easily overthrown by demagogues who appeal to people who don't like the idea that they have to allow their political opponents to rule for four years before they get a second chance. So... 
Does that mean democracy has become a partisan issue, not just in the United States, but in many of the other democracies in the world, like Poland, France, the United Kingdom, and so on? In a number of countries, there are now anti-democratic parties that would like to change their country's political system in order never to lose power. And in some places, that's become a divisive partisan issue. Yes, I wouldn't like to say it is always and everywhere, but certainly in some way, Poland is a very good example where you have a ruling party that was elected completely democratically and which emerged in a democratic system. Its first election was democratic. And during its years in power, it has tried to alter the political system so that it won't lose. And that is in you know longer story. It's to do with altering the judiciary, altering the role of state media, which is very important in Poland. It's the media that about 30% of the country watches. It's about changing the civil service. It's about providing funding for sort of fake think tanks and NGOs. I mean, there's a whole range of things that they do. And maybe moving right up to cheating and altering the election results, we don't know yet. There's an election in October, but I wouldn't be very surprised if they try and do it. But those were originally Democratic parties. So originally, the battle between that party and the three or four others in the Polish system wasn't about democracy, but it has over time become about democracy. And now it is. Poland's a country that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, obviously not as much time as you have. But the reason why is because it's connected a lot of times to Hungary. We really kind of compare those two countries because they're the two countries that were highly democratic in Eastern Europe that we've seen some significant backsliding in the recent years. And oftentimes, Poland has even referenced Hungary as an influence. But at the same time, Poland doesn't seem like it's trying to become part of Autocracy Incorporated the way that Viktor Orban is in Hungary. I mean, Viktor Orban seems very comfortable aligning Hungary with Russia in a way that Poland definitely does not. So Poland can't align itself with Russia because Poland is directly threatened by the war in Ukraine and would be the next target if Russia were ever to overrun Ukraine. So that's the main difference. Internally, Polish politics are as ugly as they ever were and getting worse. So the impression created by the war in Ukraine, you know, that Poland is fighting for democracy is true up to a point, you know, that it's true that Poles are fighting for Ukraine or they're helping Ukraine and helping Ukrainian refugees. But that's partly because it's popular in Poland. The political system is declining rapidly. I mean, at the moment, many of the leading Polish opposition figures are under criminal investigation, for example. The leader, in fact, Donald Tusk, who's the leader of the largest party, is under a completely bogus fake investigation. So it's true that while they're not seeking to join Russia, that doesn't mean that they've created a milder system at home. And I also wonder, I mean, in a different circumstance, if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine, I wonder what their policy towards Russia would be. But anyway, that's just speculation. So... You've already made clear that the government in Poland hasn't really changed its policies because of the war in Ukraine. Internally. Yes. Have the Polish people started to think differently about politics because of the war in Ukraine? Because of the war in Ukraine, people are more afraid and fear often makes people prefer autocrats. So it remains to be seen. I mean, we're a few months away still from the election, but you know, these things don't work the way you imagine they work. I mean, emotionally, people are more frightened, they're more anxious, they may prefer 
some system that they know to some political change. But I don't know. Right now, if the elections were held tomorrow, right now, the opposition would win. But as I said, we're still some months away. You're talking a lot in hypotheticals. I mean, in reading your books and hearing you talk, I mean, I get the sense that you've got a very personal connection to Poland. You've got a sense of what... Yeah, of course. I've, I've written about it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you've got a sense of what people kind of feel there. I mean... Do you think that the opposition is likely to win, or do you think that the Law and Justice Party is likely to win in the next election in October? What's your gut say? I don't know. I mean, I know that the Law and Justice, the ruling party, will cheat in the sense that they are, and they already are. You know, I know they will use the arms of the state in order to convince people to vote for them or not to vote for the opposition. They're already doing that. I wouldn't exclude some last minute game that. I don't know, locking up leaders or some such thing from possibility. And people are talking about that now openly in Poland. My sense is as if there were genuinely free election that the opposition would win. But, you know, we'll see. So, Anne, we've obviously been talking about the idea of autocracy incorporated. But I do want to refer back to your most recent book, which was called Twilight of Democracy once again, because the title, just like the subtitle, is very fascinating. It makes it sound as if democracy is in its twilight, that it's about to be extinguished. We're about to go into a period of even greater darkness. Do you really think that democracy is in its twilight, or do you feel a greater sense of hope than that title would give me the impression of? Yes, I ended the book with a greater sense of hope than the title would. So the title was, by the way, very hard to come up with. I wouldn't make too much of the title. It was a hard book to name. So that was what the publishers wanted in the end. There were other possibilities. I mean, I could have done Twilight Democracy question mark and thrown some ambiguity into it. But I mean, I think we are certainly at risk of that. I mean, I think a second Trump presidency would be so disruptive and would create so many ripple effects of violence in different ways that I wonder whether American democracy would really survive. For example, I can imagine democracy coming to an end in Poland. I wouldn't have said that five years ago even. So, you know, we are at a moment of very, very high risk. And I'm not sure that people really know that or understand it. Or if they do, if they care. There is a mood now, you know, well, the system's so rotten or it's so terrible that we might as well abandon it and anything else is better. And I always counsel people who say that very often young people to go and visit a country that's not a democracy and see if that's what you would prefer. You know, we have the system that we have. It has a lot of flaws. It needs a lot of reform and a lot of changes. I can certainly imagine a, an American democracy that had somewhat better rules, you know, and worked according to better logic. But I'm not sure that throwing it up in the name of an oligarchy or a one-party state is really going to make people's lives better. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Anne. Again, I want to plug the speech one more time. It's available on YouTube. It was with the National Endowment for Democracy. It's called Autocracy Incorporated. Apparently, we're going to be seeing a book with that title one day. Fingers crossed. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening.
The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.